0: Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. Hey, guys, this is Doc Cuffpower coming to you from my studio here in Alvin, Texas. Today, I have a really special guest, and that is Martin Mendelson. Now, Martin has been a dental consultant for almost a decade. He owns Metamorphosis. Consulting, and he is going to talk to us a little bit about some of the things that he teaches his dentists to do to help them become more profitable and to achieve a better home-life balance. But first, I have to tell you, uh, Martin is here to show his words of wisdom with us, share his words of wisdom with us for free today. This is usually something that he would would be having you pay for, and that is all because of CareStack. CareStack is the sponsor of this podcast. CareStack is the sponsor of this Facebook Live, and they have brought Martin along as a gift. I, I said, "Hey, you guys, sure you don't want a, a big commercial or something, or a, to put a deal on?" And they said, "No, people are going to hear our names, and they're going to remember that we're the ones who are giving them free
1: education." And yeah. I said, "I
0: love that." So, Martin, without further ado, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm good for a Monday morning. No complaints. It's a great way to great way to start the week. Chatting with you and everybody that's listening to us live. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Fantastic, guys. As always, if you have any questions, go ahead and drop them down below, and we will try to get to them as quickly as possible, uh, given the time that we have at our disposal today. Uh, I know Martin has a tight schedule. And I know I do as well, but go ahead and drop those questions. And worst case scenario, I'll ask him after the podcast and I'll put the answers into the chat myself. Uh, so first things first, Martin, talk to me a little bit about the journey that brought you into dental consulting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my role, uh, one might say, is kind of more in the coaching realm, even though the consulting realm. Uh, and it all started uh, back in my days at Spear Education that I'm still associated with. I'm a member of the resident faculty at Spear. And a number of years ago, we started working with specialists in a much deeper way. And so I had the really blessed opportunity to take a dive into the numbers and the uh, referral relationship activities of hundreds and hundreds of specialist practices. And so when you start talking to hundreds of people, you start to notice certain patterns. And one of the things that I started to notice most was that Obviously, number one, if we're going to do comprehensive dentistry, there is an absolute place for the specialist. We got to engage with the specialist. While at the same time, there was this overarching feeling on the part of the general practitioners, many of them, that utilizing a specialist is a commodity. It's just something that you got to do. It's something that you got to get over to get you to the place that you want to go to. And so when you start to think about that, the commoditization, and you start to think about that person that we're actually dealing with, the patient, if we can start thinking about the patient's experience, or shall I say the referral experience, from a patient centric perspective, that changes the game entirely. And so it, it really came about from experience working with these hundreds and hundreds of, of specialists at Spear, and that's kind of continued to today.
0: Well, you you say that, and I know that um, one of my absolute favorite dentists in the world, and if you're listening, uh, Kyle Moses is an endodontist in Pearland, and he's fantastic. And and the reason I loved using him is not just because he was the most skilled endodontist I've ever worked with. Sorry for my members out there if I haven't seen your amazing work, but (laughs) Kyle is pretty darn good. But it wasn't just that. It was the fact that when I had a patient who was in my chair, I would call his practice, and they would make a scheduled appointment for my patient right then and there over the phone that yep. would fit my patient's schedule. And the yep. referral process was so easy, and my team loved him. And so, because everyone on the team loved him and I respected him and his work, we had a very, very high percentage of show rates yep. for that specialist referral. Yeah. Which, um, before becoming a practice owner, I didn't realize was such a such a sketchy thing where you refer someone out to an oral surgeon and they're like, Hey, I'm going to go talk to my buddy's oral surgeon over here. Absolutely. Those patients are absolutely certain that you have some sort of kickback relationship with your specialist.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, oftentimes we talk about the rule of thirds where, you know, a third don't show up at all. A third goes somewhere else, which keys back into the commoditization element because maybe they view uh, that specialist as like any other specialist. So which one is closer? Which one takes my insurance? Which that's a whole other topic entirely because we all know the minute you step into some type of specialty care, we're in a, we're in a different, uh, <laughs> I call it a different time zone to begin with. Um, and then the third of them might actually show up. And of that last third, what's the percentage that actually say yes? And so what is it that we can do as a team to make them say yes? Because last time I checked, if they say yes, that implant gets placed, that root canal gets accomplished. And then what happens? They come back for the restorative element. So it's in our best interest to think about this relationship in a different way so that the patients feel taken care of. Our case acceptance goes up. We're able to provide great dentistry and everybody does better financially. It just Absolutely. makes sense. Yet for so many, unlike your buddy, the endodontist, it, it gets, it gets lost in, in the uh, day-to-day busyness of a practice.
0: Well, I'd say one of the things you talked about the relationship between the dentist and, and, you know, the general dentist and and the, the specialist, yep. one of the things that I see that really, it pisses me off, frankly, um, I, I remember I had an associate in my practice at one point. Um he got fired pretty quickly, but he, um, he looks at the patient He says, okay, you need this tooth, this tooth, this tooth, this tooth, this tooth, this tooth, this tooth taken out. Uh, I'm going to take these out, but I'm gonna send you the specialist for those. And I said, whoa, no, you're not. And he said, what? He said, but I can take these out. I said, I understand that. But if you have the kind of relationship with our specialists, that if you only send them the hard things that you can't yeah. do, then when you do get into a trouble where you attack something, you say, this is in my purview. This is something that I can do. And you mess up. Absolutely. That's, that That specialist's not really going to be on your list of people you want to call to help you out because you're only sending him your hardest trash work. You're not sending him any of the slam dunks. Specialists exactly. like slam dunks too. So, you know, and, and I get it. I'm not saying, guys, send out all your simple extractions. What I'm saying is don't do three simple extractions and then send out the, the, the other five surgical extractions that you don't have the skill for to the specialist because that's Absolutely. just not fair to the patient, first of all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not fair to the specialist. The, the other thing I've heard over and over again with surgical specialists is, okay, why don't you go ahead and do the graft and I'll place the implant. And, right. and it's kind of a similar idea where it's like, okay, so you want me to do X, Y, Z, but then you're going to take it from there. And let's face it, specialists are called specialists for a reason. And they have extra levels of training and they may look at the case, or shall I say, will look at the case with a different set of eyes and come up with challenges that the general practitioner may not necessarily even see, and then it becomes this whole uh, uh, management challenge. Again, patient-centric referrals. Think about the patient perspective where you're there for the graft, but the GP is going to do the implant. It just, it becomes confusing for everybody. It's like, why are we doing that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, off the air, you and I were just kind of talking a little bit about philosophy and practice management mm-hmm. because i I like to fill my guests out first if I haven't met them and and kind of understand where they're coming from, yeah, and you talked about the law of small numbers, and something popped into my head. I didn't bring it up because I wanted to bring it up on the podcast mm-hmm. uh, so whenever I partnered with m b two Dr V, who is the owner of m b two told me something, and um you know, I told you I have this great love for efficiency and for systems, mm-hmm. and um. I said, you know, what, what could I have done better with my practice to make it more valuable before partnering? And he said, um, you buy too many snacks. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he I said, I, I, I'm gonna give you an example. Let's say you've got five team members and every morning you work five days a week, you go out to Starbucks, you buy them a coffee. That's about five bucks a piece. So you're mm-hmm. looking at $30 a day, you know, with taxes and everything included. And let's say that you um, you work five days a week or 50 weeks a year, you take two weeks off. When you take that and you multiply it times 12, which is your EBITDA multiple, that cup of coffee that you got your team members, that wasn't $5. It wasn't $30 a day. It was $93,600. And mm-hmm. he just spits these numbers out off the top of his head. Yeah. You know, you, he's really, really quick. And you can give him your own numbers and he'll give you the, give you the answer. But the, <clears throat> the point is, is the rule of small, small numbers. Little things add up into really, really big things. You know, we're not talking butterfly effect here. We're not talking about a butterfly causing a, mm-hmm. uh, causing a hurricane here in the United States yep. and it flaps its wings in Japan. We're talking about real addressable numbers, things that you have control over in your practice, but you may not be thinking about. And so, Martin, why don't we go ahead and cover that real quick, <clears throat> if yeah. you wouldn't
1: mind. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll cover it kind of like from both, both ends of the spectrum. Um, if if you take the GP, for example, first. And they're referring a certain number of cases a month to a specialist, so let's just say one a week, which is really small, but it's easy to math. It's like four cases. And let's say your case acceptance is, you know, as we were talking earlier, the uh, as you shared with me, the average is about 30, 40 percent. Well, what? Would it be like for the GP if we could actually work with a specialist to understand what our colleagues in the community are doing potentially differently to increase that case acceptance to maybe 50 or 65 percent? Now, all of a sudden, instead of one point, whatever case is being accepted, now all of a sudden we're getting two or three accepted per month. And those patients are coming back for the restorative elements. And, you know, put your crown fee in there, uh, ladies and gentlemen, on the GP side. Uh, what might that equate for your practice, even just with this really, really small example? And so not looking at the relationship as a commodity, but as an opportunity for what is it that I can do differently to increase case acceptance? What is it that my colleagues in the community are doing differently? This isn't a competition. I think everybody can embrace the fact that there's plenty of teeth to go around. And so what, what can we learn from other people To have a growth mindset around the opportunity to do things better versus a fixed mindset, as Carol Dweck would say, uh, where your your abilities are are related to who you are as a person. So that's on the GP side. Uh, On the specialist side, the numbers get even crazier because if they can increase their case acceptance, let's say by even 5% or 10% amongst all of the people that refer to them. All of a sudden, and this is what we saw at Spear over and over and over again, all of a sudden, these specialists are ending up treating one additional case a day on average. And I want to be very clear here. When I say one additional case a day, that could be in 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 number or value. Right because the, um, the comprehensiveness of the case comes into the, the equation here. And so all of a sudden, these, these practices that we we're working with are going up by six figures or more. Some of the practices doubled that were already doing really well to begin with. These weren't two, three hundred thousand dollar practices. We're talking a million plus. So these small numbers matter. And when you plug in your own numbers and you start to do the math, what would one additional accepted case mean? What would 5% additional case acceptance mean? All of a sudden you start to realize that the effort is worth it. The relationship is not a commodity. There's somebody at the other end of the stick here called the patient, and we can actually make them feel uh, more like we're operating as one entity to make them feel more taken care of, which is gonna end up aligning with higher levels of case acceptance. And so, we, we could go on and on about this for hours because it's so impactful. It's so important. And I know we've both seen it over and over and over again. Oh, I lost your audio there.
0: Sorry about that. I had oh, to clear my are. throat and I, I muted myself. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, is um, in my practice, at least I know, um, when I sent a patient out to Kyle for a root canal, I knew because we had talked about it. I said, look, mm-hmm. I'm a huge believer in getting a crown on that sucker as soon as possible. So as yeah. soon as you think it's asymptomatic and it's going to work, you send them back to me. And he would reinforce every single time. Hey, look, you need to go back to Dr. Huffpower and get this crown as soon as possible, because if it breaks, you've wasted your money. And yeah. both he and I want to make sure this is an investment in your future. Yep. My oral surgeon was the same way. I'd say, Reza, do me a favor. Can you can you can you remind this guy he needs to get that tooth in front of this one crowned?
1: Yeah, yeah, because it,
0: yeah. it's got a big cavity in it where that wisdom tooth was eating a hole in it, and I'm afraid he's going to need a root canal. He said, "Oh yes, 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 I can, I can do that for you." And absolutely. It would come back and they'd say, "Doctor, Doctor, Doctor said I need a, a crown on this tooth." You remember we talked about that big cavity back there? He's absolutely right, and that's the thing. It's it's a it's a mutual affirmation relationship. Yep. yep. It also, in the end, becomes. A mutual referral relationship. Absolutely. It, probably, I shouldn't say that too loudly, but my oral surgeon and my endodontist and my orthodontist all referred cases to me.
1: Hundred percent. Hundred percent. One of my best friends, who's uh, practices outside Chicago, he built his entire practice on what we like to call the reverse referral, because he had such a great relationship with the specialists. You know, patients come into the specialist door all the time that don't have uh, a general dentist of record. And so if, if you can build that relationship differently, then they're going to send to you all day long. Now, the, the other element of this, which I love talking about as well as, and you kind of, you alluded to this is, don't make things uh, too complicated, or let me rephrase, uh, don't leave things to chance. I mean, if you're sending somebody for an extraction, for root canal, et cetera, and they have all this other stuff going on, and you make zero note of that. Well, how do you expect a specialist to deal with that? You're putting them between a rock and a hard place because they have an obligation to the patient. So they have to say something. And you know what they say about people who assume, let's stop the assumption element of it, create a different relationship, even have a discussion. You know, how do we handle things? You know, if a patient presents, and we have all these questions, but it's not noted on on our documentation. How
0: do we handle that? It, there's there's another there's another point to that as well. You know, as a GP, I, I became what <clears> a lot of us call super GPs. I didn't like doing endodontics. I, I really kind of cut out everything in my practice I didn't mm-hmm. enjoy. Sure. You know, if it was a class two, I had to associate for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed doing full mouth restorations and all on fours and implants and bone grafts and surgery. I mean, if I could be you know, elbow deep in blood all day long. That was my, my happy Sure, part. And not everybody's like that. Nope. But the point is, is that what I noticed is it's kind of like the carpenter and a hammer, right? I was looking for nails. And sometimes I remember the first time my associate caught something I missed. Mm-hmm. It was humbling. It was embarrassing, Yeah, but it really made me think a lot more about the way our, our specialists must think, because I was kind of becoming like a subspecialty within my general practice. Right. Yeah. And so it made me realize that I wasn't seeing that class two because I was looking for bone and seeing, or the implants there, you know, so your specialist may not see those things. So if you tell them, Hey, would you do me a favor? Not only is it going to bring it to the front of their mind, Mm-hmm. And they know that you've seen it and that you've recommended it because let's let's face it, you don't want to assume that the GP has noticed this and then yeah. cause an embarrassing situation by saying, Oh, by the way, I'm sure Dr. Hoffpower told you about that exactly. cavity right there, it needs to be fixed. Yeah. Well, no, he never mentioned it. Exactly you don't want to be that guy, right? Nope. So nope. if you want to have great lines of communication between yourself and your specialist, and you want that relationship to engender the relationship between yourself and your patient, you need to communicate well.
1: Absolutely, you know. After I became disabled from practice, I had the good fortune to work in a dental laboratory for a couple of years, and I was the liaison between the dentist and the lab, which was an amazing experience, particularly as somebody who was a clinician. And uh, every lab has something called preferences, right? Right. And you know, you sit down, some labs more than others, and you talk about, okay, what do we do when this happens? What do we do when that happens, et cetera? Why are we not having this conversation between right. offices to to reduce that kind of thing so that uh, the, again, patient-centric referral, the patient feels uh, uh, better taken care of. Because um, it, it's interesting, even uh, what you were talking about was uh, you missed the DO because you're looking for bone. Um, you know, that's called frequency bias or the Bain-Meinhof right. phenomenon. And, you know, for everybody listening, it's like when you go ahead and go out and buy a new car, all of a sudden it seems like everybody has that same anywhere. make and model everywhere. Yep. And so we have this bias when we have these uh, blinders on to to only see what we want to see. And that's not exactly in our patient's best interest.
0: Absolutely. All right. So we've covered a little bit of ground here. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the things that you coach your dentist on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, somebody who has had the good fortune to not just jump into coaching, but also have jumped into happiness studies. I have a certificate as such, as well as emotional intelligence, et cetera. And so, so many of us got in a dental school because of our IQ, our intelligence quotient. Yet the truth of the matter is, is that the the EQ, our emotional intelligence and how we interact with others in the world plays a huge part in how successful we're going to be in practice. And so what I work most with my Clients around is team cohesion and communication to help facilitate better team uh, efficiencies and then, therefore, profitability. So, I've developed a framework uh, utilizing the word team, which stands for transparency, engagement, alignment, and mindset. And so, you know, the, the US Bureau of Labor and Statistics estimates that uh, negativity in the workplace costs businesses of all types $3 billion a year that's with a b. And so what I do as kind of a a um, foundation with my clients is how are we working together? How are we thinking about our interactions with people? And um I I engage something from one of my certifications. It's an acronym from Jen Barley and Karen Sullivan called TIFAR, which is our thoughts lead to feelings that generate our actions that facilitate results. So here's the here's the secret though. Every single thing that happens in our practice and in our lives is technically neutral. It's the thought that we generate around that situation that will drive our feelings, our actions, and precipitate our results. So let's give a team example. Let's say uh, you have a team member that showed up late three times in the last five days. And you haven't said anything yet. And you're sitting there going, this person's taking advantage of me. Who do they think they are? They're stealing from me, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of feelings does that generate? Well, anger, frustration, et cetera. Uh, what kind of actions might that precipitate? Well, uh, if you're liking the example, maybe you don't say anything because you're too afraid of conflict. Or if you're not afraid of conflict, maybe then therefore you're gonna kind of lash out and go, what are you doing? Why are you you know, keep coming in late? And, and if we assume this team member is somebody we like, how does that manifest the results that we want to keep that team member and keep ourselves profitable? Right.
0: I'm going to argue with you on one point. Yeah. Um, I think that um, no one who is afraid of, uh, or rather no one interacts hostily with their team members. If they're afraid of confrontation, Uh, there's a, there's a, a a personality component I call confront, which Mm -hmm. is um, the opposite of cowardice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you are a coward Internally, you are afraid to confront people. Mm -hmm. You will always either react by pulling into your shell and then attributing the most ungenerous thoughts to other people possible to make yourself feel better for why you're not confronting them or you will over-confront them because you feel as if you have to go in with more force than they do so that you can, quote, win the argument. It's not about winning an argument. It is about making yourself known and then saying, how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the the if we extend the example where situation is the same, they're coming in late three out of the last five days. Now, all of a sudden, you find out somebody's sick at home. Right. Now, what are your thoughts and your feelings and your actions and your results? So, you know, in, in the book, Crucial Conversations, uh, which I get asked to help people with all the time is how to talk to people when things are dicey. Um, They talk about literally uh, almost exactly what you just said. They either react with silence or violence, right? Right. They either shut down or they lash out. And those actions are precipitated by our thoughts of said situations, which oftentimes, uh, which is another Jen and Karenism, we make stuff up or MSU. And so when I work with teams, we go through a really deep dive in how we're actually filtering our interactions. We create an alliance in the practice relative to how do we want to show up every day, how are we going to show up when there are challenges, and how do we want to keep each other accountable? And that has yielded amazing results for our clients because it it, it creates a completely different practice because now we're not running around assuming stuff all day. We're actually communicating, which is allowing us to be happier and more profitable.
0: Absolutely. And and for our listeners out there, I want to make sure that you understood. He said MSU, not MCU. I realize that both of those things make things up. Yeah. 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 And and, and the nerds out there got that, so it's okay. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about frameworks. Um, yeah. What, what I find that most things belong in a framework um, and, and and our minds, frankly, crave frameworks, which is mm-hmm. why we try to label people and put them in yeah. the boxes. Yep. So communication itself works best upon a framework. Let's talk about a basic communications framework because I believe that most dentists, because of the fact that we are highly cerebral people and we are studious and we are chosen for our GPA and our brain power, we are not chosen necessarily for our empathy or our ability to communicate. So let's talk a little bit about those frameworks and how even someone who's super cerebral can work at this in a way that they can become a better communicator with their team, with their associates with their mm-hmm. specialists.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it really goes down to understanding, I'll use the word framework of how to challenge your actual thoughts. And so one of my hallmark questions that I give to my clients, whenever they think about any issue whatsoever is, how true is that really? You know, what are the facts that actually support my assertion? Are there facts that support that? Or are there facts that don't support that? And so how do we sit in a place of curiosity so that we don't end up assuming that their action was done to tick us off or 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 to leave another team member shorthanded? Because last time I checked, most people don't get in their car every morning and think of, think about, okay, how am I going to be a jerk at the office this morning? Um, they go to the office because it's the, the position they have. Uh, to attempt to do the best they can with the skills they have at the time. So my framework has a lot to do with the um, transparency part about it, which is transparency within the team, as well as transparency within yourself, so that you're thinking about things differently, so that your actions can be different to yield different results. Absolutely. I think I lost your video. You Not did.
0: Um, I, I know what's going on. Unfortunately, I have a, um, I have a USB-C switch that's going out. Um, mm. I thought I had figured out the problem, but I think I didn't.
1: No worries. No
0: worries. Just means we got to buy a new one. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I think that is some great advice. Um, I, I would actually follow that up with something that uh, there, there's, a, there's a phenomenon called interbulation. And Mm -hmm. what interbulation, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's, it's think about cavitation behind a boat, right? Uh, You you can spin your propeller so fast, you're going nowhere, right? All you're doing is you're using up energy in a very inefficient and non-effective manner. Interbulation is very similar to that. It's whenever you have something that is gnawing at you. Let's say someone's been late three days this week, right? And you have a, a low confront you have a, maybe a high cowardice, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm picking on you guys about that. I don't really think you're cowards. I think it's human nature to not want to to hinge on someone else, but it's your job. Right. And so you're fighting yourself going, okay, I'm going to say this. And they're going to say that. Oh, oh, that's going to make me mad. How am I going to, you've made up this whole conversation without ever talking to the other person. The easiest thing to do is to go in there that morning and say, Kim, I got to talk to you about something. I'm, I'm a little bit upset with with, with, with you over something, I'm not, I'm not real mad, but I have to talk to you about it because it's been really just, it's been bothering me. And, and and frankly, if I don't tell you, it's going to keep bothering me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and then just lay it out, you know, and and then say something like, am I just being silly here? Diffuse, 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 diffuse. allow the other person to know that you want to hear them. Absolutely. I, I think we forget too much about the fact that conversation is more like a ping pong match than yeah. it is like football. You're not just throwing the ideas down. Yeah. Field, Absolutely.
1: Right? It's not just
0: your team running it. This is you're you're exchanging that ball because if you're not, then you're not really conversing. You're talking at people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I, I mentioned it right, but I'm a huge fan of the book, Crucial Conversations. And I strongly recommend it, especially if you're struggling with having these challenging conversations to pick that book up and read it. Cause talk about frameworks. I mean, it it you know you you just mirrored uh the book to a very large degree what what they recommend is look you start with the facts and the facts typically are irrefutable typically right hey listen you know susie you came in or johnny you know of the last five days you've come in at least 20 minutes late well that's on the time card or whatever whatever system you use that's like look i don't want you to think uh we don't value here as a team member but i do want you to understand this is a problem so I'd love to talk to you about it. Because really, from my perspective, this is eating me up inside. It's kept me up at night. I don't understand what's going on. So I just, I really need to talk to you. Like, what is happening? And it just blows the door open uh, to have that conversation.
0: And and this is, again, like I said, it's a two-way street. So one of the things that I did in my practice, and a lot of people, when they first hear this, they they really bristle at it. And it's actually meant to do that. Mm -hmm. because I want people to have an emotional reaction to it and then realize that they just kind of fell for what I did. And, and that is, I don't want to hear about your efforts. Tell me about your results. Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. a patient, when a patient, whenever an employee comes to you and you say, Hey Susie, did you um, order that handpiece that I asked you about? Well, you know, Dr. Huffpower, um, my kid was sicker, you know, it was yesterday was so busy what I would do is I would stop them right there and I'd say, I don't want to hear about your efforts. Tell me about your results. Mm-hmm. And they'd get pissed at first and then they'd take a breath and they'd say, no, sir, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Do you know what mm-hmm. I said then? Oh, okay, cool. That's okay. Yeah. Is there something you need for me to help to help to make that happen? Yep. Yeah. So they're building up, they're expecting a confrontation. And when you blow the door off of that, let them okay. let all that steam out. Yeah. And then you confront them with kindness yeah. and an opportunity for help it changes the way your entire practice functions. It, and I'll be frank with you guys. When you learn these things, when you learn the stuff that Martin can teach you, it changes your life. It changes your family interactions too. And there's nothing more valuable than that because that is why we all do what we do.
1: Amen. Amen. I mean, these, what I, I I don't just work within dentistry. I work in all different types of fields. Why? Why? Because people are people and right. whether you're fixing teeth or selling houses or what have you, these same uh, thought uh, uh, processes are relevant no matter what it is you do. And, you know, people get so wrapped up in the communication part and how do we interact and so forth. If you can create uh, what I heard you say as psychological safety, where people feel that the environment is safe to bring things up. They really do truly believe that we as leaders of the practice are there for everybody's best interest. But along with that comes expectations and responsibilities. There's nothing wrong with expectations and responsibilities. And at the same time, that doesn't mean that we can't create a psychologically safe place for our team members to bring stuff up so that we can all be better at, you know? Um, if I may, for a brief second, you, yes, you use the word uh, you talked about empathy a bunch of times, and I always like to tell this story because I think it speaks volumes. Um, typically, in my in-person workshops and practices, I will use the 360 emotional intelligence assessment, and the doctor will take it, the team will take it, and usually peers will take it too. I don't debrief it though until after I'm in the practice, worked with the team, etc. And one of the times that struck me as most impactful. Was I? I had a doc. It was a specialist. Where the gap between how empathetic they thought they were and the team thought they were was massive. The doc thought they were empathetic. The team didn't. We go through, you know, interacting differently, creating some tools, giving them a framework. I then debriefed the the EQ assessment after, showed the doctor the gaps because I never show them going in because I don't want them to sit there thinking who didn't think I was not empathetic, right? He took one look at the gap in empathy and he goes, Martin, look at empathy. I get it. I said, what do you mean you get it? He goes, I was thinking it in my head. I never spit it out of my mouth. And so, you know, just because we're thinking it up here right. doesn't mean our teams are hearing us. And that's a that's a huge, uh, that really made an impact on me.
0: You know, one of the, uh, one of the oldest descriptions of what communications is um we're talking about frameworks earlier mm-hmm. is encoding transmission receipt decoding
1: yep there there has to be transmission there buddy yep yep absolutely absolutely and our interpretation of what we get back is is hugely impactful as well cuz we're all going to interpret things from our own from our own perspective and the mm-hmm. the other the other thing i think docs typically um don't necessarily really keep in mind, too, is within our practices, there can be a very significant education gap, a very significant life experience gap, and of course, there's a significant income gap between the clinicians and the team. And those realities uh, create life experiences, and people, everybody, does the best they can with the skills they have at the time. And just because you as the clinician with your doctorate, your life experience and your income, look at it in a given way, doesn't mean your team's going to look at it that same way either or or instead. And so we need to embrace that. It doesn't make it right or wrong. But the minute we stop and think, oh, how might somebody else interpret that? It can really open the door uh, to kind of diffuse yourself of being all huffy and puffy about a situation because you're assuming that the person was thinking one way when in fact they might be thinking the complete opposite but if we never even consider it then we're just going to keep going down our narrow-minded road getting more and more and more upset and you know how's that working for us so you
0: know it's it's funny and i i don't know if you purposefully did this or not but you um you you skimmed right over imposter syndrome right there I did yeah um you know there, there's so many people out there who worry that they're not enough And one of the things that I um, told one of my associates one day, they were just um, one of those things where you get like your first real complaint, Mm -hmm. and um, he was worried because it was you know did I do something wrong? I said, did you do the best you could with what you knew at the time? Yep. Because any time that you are confronted with a problem, what you have is all you have. Yep. And that means that what you have and what you are is always enough.
1: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, You know, what what you've kind of dovetailed into, maybe without realizing it either, is first of all, imposter syndrome statistically hits people of higher education levels to a much more significant degree, number one. And
0: higher IQ. Dumb people do not suffer from
1: it. Correct. Second of all, we as dentists, suffer uh, from anxiety disorder, panic disorder, impression, and depression at two times the incidence of the general population, and our suicide rate is significantly higher. And so, um, you know, I've been kind of on a mission with my buddy, Dr. Kyle Stanley, to kind of, you know, uh, 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 illuminate this challenge of mental health and dentistry and imposter syndrome and really thinking that we're less than and looking at social media and thinking my preps aren't as good, my you know my my final film isn't as good, my graphs aren't as good. We we can only do the best we can with the skills we have at the time. And so um we we could go on for this for hours because the truth of the matter is is that when we're stuck in a dark mental health place, when we're stuck with imposter syndrome, if you look at uh, Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory, we literally don't function the same way when we're in a negative space as we do when we're in a positive. Yeah. Or, when visual- you're,
0: or when you're in either.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, our, our visual cortex misses things when we're in a negative place and it's been proven. And so folks, we so need our- to take seriously our mental health.
0: So should we talk a little bit about the Dunning-Kruger effect?
1: Sure. So that's one of Kyle's favorite things. Yeah. So
0: guys, guys, if you're not familiar, um, there, there's actually a very real phenomenon. It's been tested scientifically. Um, and it, it's what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it states that your belief in your competency is inversely related to your actual knowledge. Sure. And sure. we, as dentists, we go through this roller coaster of life and learning. Um, all of us get out of dental school barely knowing enough not to kill someone. And if you're a new dentist and you take offense to that, give it a couple of years. You'll understand I'm right. (laughs) Very true. The truth of the matter, though, is that we have that same phenomenon occur stair stepping over our entire careers. Yep. Um, you learn something new, you feel like you probably know a lot about it. You've taken a hundred thousand dollars in courses, you've been doing it for years, boom, something happens. Oh shit. I don't know anything. Yeah. And what that's called climbing Mount Stupid and then falling into the valley of despair. Yep. The valley of despair is when you realize you don't know what you thought you knew and you begin questioning everything. And I'm sure most of us as children, because most of us are relatively introspective and intelligent, have had something happen that made us question the the vast amount of knowledge that is around us. You know, well, if that's not right, well then should I believe this is right too? Sure. You know this. Yeah. This was misprinted. You know this is. This was my molecular and cellular yeah. biology book, and it yeah. was wrong. And yeah. how do I know everything I learned in that book isn't wrong? That is where imposter syndrome ties into the Dunning Kruger effect. Yep. And so, all yours, Martin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, uh, Kyle gives an, an insanely uh, well thought of um, uh, lecture and has a curriculum on mental health, and, th- and that's one of the cores, the whole Dunning-Kruger effect and the data around our mental health within dentistry. And what he talks about is what's called the triangle of blame. And so there's three parts to, to the triangle. There's, there's the patient, there's us, and then there's all these other factors, genetics, physics, environment, diet, et cetera. And so what we end up doing is we forget about that other factor. And when things don't go wrong, who do we blame? We automatically blame ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I'm incompetent at this. It all ties in together, right? When we can embrace that there are other factors afoot, that's when everything changes. Um, because uh, one of the other things that Kyle talks about that, that I've embraced as well is the idea of uh, we call a poor outcome in dentistry a failure.
0: Yep, it needs to be a revision, just like the MDs do.
1: Bingo, that's exactly right. And so why don't we talk about being a revision? It's it 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 again ironically goes back to Carol Dweck and fixed versus growth mindset. It's, you know, fixed would be that didn't go well, I'm a failure, or that didn't go well, I failed. What can I do differently next time to bring myself forward? And this is not about negating responsibility. This is about thinking about things differently. Uh, and, and there's a reason why they call it practice. Haha. Ha. Right. And so we, we need to embrace the fact that, as we said several times already, we do the best we can with the skills we have at the time. And that includes how we're actually thinking about things and how we're moving forward based upon those thoughts, because those thoughts can make or break us, period. Oh.
0: You know, and, and I, would, I would go one step further there. Um, instead of saying this went poorly, I failed. What can I do about it? I would actually make a correction. This went poorly. Something failed. What was it? Sure. What can I do about it? Sure. And, and I'll tell you a, a specific example. I placed a lot of implants in my practice. I placed one on one of my best friends mm-hmm. and um, everything was great. Gets past the first nine months, gets past the first year, mm-hmm. no bone loss appreciably. And then at two years, it suddenly fails, mm. as do his other implants. And I'm sitting there thinking, what did I do wrong? Did I mess up the occlusion? Did mm-hmm. I? So I took a step back and I thought about it and I said, okay, I want you to go to your doctor, get a complete blood panel run. Mm-hmm. My friend over this time had suddenly become. Diabetic, developed hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, mm-hmm. like everything that kills implants. You know, except yeah. for smoking. And I was going to so, say, did he smoke too? <laughs> he, he didn't smoke, and um, it, and so that it told me, look, I was right to look further than what did I do wrong? Yeah, absolutely. Because if I hadn't done that, my friend would still be diabetic. Yeah, and, you know, absolutely. I,
1: he wouldn't absolutely. Treated. You know. One of my favorite areas that I bring into all my teachings is the the science of happiness. And you know the this um, you know, the the idea around, um I just lost my train of thought, oh my gosh., uh, so we're talking about, um, oh, and so a lot of people rail against the concept of toxic positivity, which I'm not a fan of either. Toxic mm-hmm. positivity is always looking to the bright side period without actually engaging in the negativity. You make me want
0: to, you make me want to whistle the song.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because happiness is a comparative emotion. We can't know the happiness without the sadness. Right. right. And so when, when we think about all these things, um, the, the idea that some people call toxic or the phrase that some people call toxic is everything happens for a reason. I actually don't feel that that's toxic if we sit back and talk like we were just discussing relative to, okay, this happened because of a certain reason. What could we be done differently next time or what needs to be done now to preclude that from happening in the future? And so um, it it's just, the way we look at things, the way we process, the way we think about things, um, really guides us to be more successful in practice. And you know, I got to applaud some of the entities. the The ADA finally has a wellness committee. Finally, um, certain of the academic institutions are embracing um, discussions on mental health. I know Spear did a continuum uh, a year ago last summer on mental health. But you know, we we sit there all day long. And we talk about clinical, clinical, clinical. Well, that's important. And at the end of the day, two things. Number one, if the patient doesn't say yes, we're not doing anything. So how are we working on our communications and our and our structure? And and B, how are we working on ourselves so that we can be more effective in practice and be successful? And, and I, I feel like our profession gives it lip service without necessarily really embracing it, at least today. I- couldn't I couldn't
0: agree more. I mean, we are in one of the only two professions I can think of, the other being a lawyer, where mm-hmm. it's okay to just publicly say, I fucking hate you. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah. How yeah. in what world is that okay in any yep. way, shape, or form? We're yep. also in a profession where people don't want to be there. Yeah. We're also in a profession where it requires a high level of technical skill and empathy. Yep. To be successful. Yep. And so you're an empathetic individual that's being battered down every single day by every third patient coming in, telling you how much they hate you and your profession and don't want to be here. And all you're trying to do is make a living and help people. Exactly. You don't exactly. think we're gonna have mental
1: health issues. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And and even just how we listen to those patients, like you know, somebody somebody comes in and they say, you know, I'm really worried about, you know, having this root canal and, you know, we as the clinician or one of our team members says, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Dr. Mendelssohn. does these all the time. Well, you haven't addressed their concerns. To me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, you know, there's, you know, listening is not always listening. There's three different right. types that I teach. That's a whole other subject. But the point is, is that we need to be curious about our world. We need to respect where other people are coming from, particularly when they're in our chair. And, and we need to think about what it what's coming out of our mouths, how it's coming out of our mouths, and what we say to ourselves between our ears as well. Oh, absolutely.
0: I think they need to add a fourth style of listening. You know, you got your active listening, your passive listening. Yeah. I, need a, I need you guys to add a, I'm really on my cell phone and I'm just going, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs>
1: that one yeah. seems to be very yeah. prevalent today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the way I teach is uh, subjective, objective, and intuitive subjective is making it about you completely objective is actually focusing all on them, but not getting to the heart of the issue. And intuitive is really kind of reading between the lines. And there's, there's, uh, ways and exercises to get people to understand the difference. And it could become really, really powerful, uh, to engage intuitive, particularly in the dental practice.
0: All right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, um, I'm going to ask you to um, leave them with a few nuggets and then tell them a little bit about where they can um, they can contact you yeah. after this podcast is over. But first, um, I want you to give them maybe your top three or top five nuggets that they can go back to the office tomorrow mm-hmm. and put into place.
1: Sure. So what I would say, first of all, is uh, what we think is happening is not always what's happening. And so the, the question that I talked about earlier, when we, when we come upon a given situation and we immediately think uh, X, Y, or Z, how true is that really, right? And am I making this all about me or am I actually considering other factors that may be afoot, right? Um, so second point that goes along with that, Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, was a Holocaust survivor, a psychologist and uh, psychiatrist and neurologist has been famously quoted as saying, there's a space between stimulus and reaction. And so if we can live in that space and be more curious about what's actually happening, we may in fact come up with a different um, potential outcome that we can then consider and move forward. The next thing I would say is uh, people do the best they can with the skills they have at the time. When you really embrace that statement, it could be life-changing for you, right? Um, because it it gives the other part the other party permission or gives you permission to open up the aperture about, you know, did they just not know any better uh, in in a given in a given place. I think the next thing I would say to you is to,, uh, think about happiness as a comparative emotion. It's perfectly fine not to be okay. and that the only way we're going to actually work through, these challenges of emotion is to allow them to flow through and flow past us. And if you need some additional help from mental health professionals, do it. Okay. Um, And I I think what the last thing I'd say is just, you know, if you can embrace the whole concept of MSU making stuff up, like, you know, am I making stuff up right now? Um, It, it, it can be life-changing. I guess, I'll I'll leave one other item, which is this. Um, I I went on vacation recently and I had a really good time and I was really able to kind of detach. And you you made this comment earlier. You talked about, uh, I believe your words exactly were about being selfish about your own thoughts, right? And that was something that really came to me um, that it's not always about me, Martin, or it's not always about you, Martin. And when you can stop making it about yourself, when you go into that situation and you get mad that your friend didn't call you when they said they were going to, or whatever the case may be, and you sit there and you say to yourself, it's not about you, Martin, that can be completely transformative because it extracts you out of that assumptive place to allow you to consider a different alternative. I, I would I would actually say it's freeing. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Um, what I would say best way to contact me is actually through my website, which is martinmendelson.com. Um, and uh, you mentioned endodontics a whole bunch of times. I'm actually speaking at the uh, AAE national meeting in May. Uh, I'm actually giving a presentation on referral relationships, the good, the bad, the ugly. <laughs> and I'm also giving a uh, presentation on mindset and communication. Where we talk about listening and, and some of the frameworks that we just briefly talked about here today. But, you know, it's uh, it, it's been a long road for me. Uh, it will be 20 years ago this June, that I became disabled from practice. And, you know, I was just Joe Dentist in private practice in Glen Burnie, Maryland. And so I was out of work for almost two years. And it took a lot of perseverance, a lot of tears, a lot of imposter syndrome and pizza mount stupid to kind of get where I am today. And, and we're all on our own journeys. And wherever we are in our own journeys, that's actually where we're supposed to be. Um, accepting that as this is the way it's always going to be, that's what I would challenge people about. So it's just, it's such a great honor to be able to work with my colleagues and people outside of dentistry to help facilitate changes in mindset, which ends up changing, uh, their ability to drive cohesion and profitability in their practices. So,
0: I love it. Yeah. So guys, if you are in the, uh, in the Pearland or Friendswood area, Dr. Kyle Moses, is a wonderful endodontist. I'd like to call that out. Uh, Dr. Meredith Scott was my favorite orthodontist. She's amazing, and Dr. Reza Zakara was my favorite oral surgeon. Uh, so, if you guys are GPS out there and you um, you would like to find someone great to work with, I highly recommend them. Which is, of course, the effect of what yeah we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. But I really have to make a call out to Carestack for arranging this and. Um, paying for Dr. Martin to come on here and give you guys some free information and some free advice to maybe help your practice to run a little bit more smoothly and and maybe make you just a little happier because let's face it, there's there's no real ebb of multiple on happiness. Mm-hmm. Folks, thanks for joining us again today. Again, this is Dr. Christopher Huffpower signing off. Martin, thank you for giving us your time. Absolutely, And um, I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc Podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc Podcast on all major platforms.